1: Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Mary Doria Russell, the author of six highly regarded, award-winning, best-selling novels. Most recently, Epitaph, a novel of the O.K. Corral. The prologue, Sing, Goddess of Ruinous Wrath, a line from the Iliad, lays the groundwork. To understand the gunfight in Tombstone, stop now and watch Clock for 30 Seconds. Listen to a tick while you try to imagine one half of a single minute, so terrible it will pursue you all your life and far beyond the grave. Begin your half minute with righteous confidence, though you stand six paces from armed and angry men. They have abused you. They have threatened your life. Your rage and fear are justified. They are in the wrong. You are within the law. About all this, have no doubt. Two quiet clicks, a breathless instant. The gunfire becomes deafening. When a sudden silence falls, just 30 seconds later, the life you thought was yours will be over. Imagine. Your name is Earp, or Holiday. Your name is Clanton, or McClary. Your name is Bean. Your name is Marcus, or Sullivan, Houston, or Haroni. You were in the middle of the gunfight, You watched it, stunned. You heard the fusillade and thought, Dear God, not my man, please God, not mine. Whatever your name, it will be blackened. Every flaw, every mistake held up for scrutiny, condemnation, ridicule. Your secrets made public. Your reputation twisted and sear as a blighted leaf. Every accomplishment, every act of kindness or courage forgotten. Everything you were, everything you hoped for, everything you planned, gone. Whether you live another five minutes or another fifty years, those awful thirty seconds will become a private eclipse of the sun, darkening every moment left to you. You will be cursed with a kind of immortality. Year after year, everything that did and did not happen during those thirty seconds of confusion and noise, smoke and pain, will be analyzed and described, distorted and disputed. A century will pass, and decades more. Still, the living will haunt the dead as that half-minute becomes entertainment for hundreds of millions around the world. Long after you die, you will be judged by those who cannot imagine standing six paces from armed and angry men. Not even for 30 seconds. And now, please join me in welcoming Mary Doria Russell. Hi, Mary. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Thank you so much for agreeing to the interview. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you. I've been a huge fan of yours uh, since I heard you on Krista Tippett's radio show, On Being, in 2009. I immediately went out and read The Sparrow and Children of God. And I'd planned to say that they were science fiction and that I was glad to discover uh, when I started this podcast that you were now writing books set in the past. But uh, then I saw this wonderful quotation on your website, All my books are historical novels. It's just that some of them take place in the future, which is exactly how I feel about my own science fiction novels. So uh, maybe we can start there. How are The Sparrow and Children of God historical novels that take place in the future? And please feel free to fill us in on as much of the plot as you'd like to reveal.
0: Okay. Well, these are uh, – while I was writing them, I had a sense that the narrator would be someone who was looking back at the events that were taking place in 2060 from – a distance of about a hundred to one hundred and fifty years. The narrator is not named. It's not a uh, first person narrator. It's just the um, uh, the voice that tells the story. And that person was looking back uh, from a fair distance, enough to be able to understand, um, to get past the the immediacy of blaming people for what went wrong or or, uh, trying to avoid blame for what went wrong. This is somebody who's got some distance on what happened and some compassion for the people who were involved in the story. So to me, that was a historical novel. (laughs)
1: Oh, yes. No, I understand that perfectly now. Um, So you also wrote two novels set in the 20th century, uh, A Thread of Grace and Dreamers of the Day. And uh, so tell us a little bit about these books and what drew you to these particular topics.
0: Right. Well, when I was um, uh, touring for Children of Grace, which is the follow-on to The Sparrow, um, I came across a book in a bookstore called uh, Benevolence and Betrayal, five Italian Jewish families under fascism. And um, I had recently converted to Judaism. I am of uh, Italian heritage. And I'm not proud of this, but my, my first reaction to the title of this book was Italian Jews. I didn't know there were Italian Jews. I thought I was the only one. Um and so I bought the book and everything I read about it was a surprise on virtually every level and I thought I've got to do something with this because it brought together uh the religion that I chose with the religion that I was born to uh it it gave me a sense of the history of my own family in the uh uh in, in Italy during the war and so I I really wanted to tell that story um it's something that I think is not nearly as well known as it ought to be um uh the Italians regardless of what the pope did because that's what everybody focuses on oh did the pope try or did he not try to save jews um below that level the roman catholic clergy stepped up in courageously and the uh there was a vast conspiracy of priests and peasants and and nuns uh and and monks and uh, all of them saved 43,000 Jews during a 20-month occupation by the Nazis. Uh, and I just felt that that was a story that needed to be told. Um, it, anybody who works on World War II, however, will tell you that uh, it was basically just a, a um, the continuation of World War I. Uh, that um, after World War I, they had to wait for an entire generation of boys to be born and drafted and trained as, uh, as military and put back into combat And that's basically what happened So I wanted to understand um, Where the origins of World War II How they were rooted in the decisions that were made after World War I um, And dreams of the day Was what came out of that curiosity um, It in, in, Instead of going into Europe however I decided that what interested me most Was the making of the modern Middle East um, and so, Dreamers of the Day is about the 1921 Cairo Peace Conference. Now, we don't remember that in the West at all. That's that's like a big what? You know, nobody nobody recognizes that name. But um, in when Osama bin Laden took credit for bringing down the trade towers and attacking Washington uh, in uh, on 9/11, the statement that he issued was that these attacks were in part retribution for the catastrophe of 80 years ago. Oh, that was 2001. Do the math. Uh, the, the, conf- the, the, yeah, the peace conference of 1921 is the, the catastrophe that Osama bin Laden was avenging. Uh, and that's something I think the people, people like us need to understand. In, in America, when we say that something is history, we mean it as dis- it's dismissive. Oh, that's history. Uh, that's something we don't need to, to pay attention to anymore. We can turn our backs on that. That's not the attitude in the rest of the world. History is live, and the uh, uh, the 1921 Cairo Conference is to this very day uh, the reason for the the um, um, the breakup of, of Syria, the um, um, the Shia and Sunni uh, um, wars that are going on throughout the Middle East. All of that has its roots in the decisions that were made in 1921 by Winston Churchill and Gertrude Bell and T.E. Lawrence. If we paid attention to Lawrence of Arabia, this wouldn't be happening, or at least it would be ameliorated.
1: And that's really interesting. This is a sideline to where we're going, but I'm actually, I'd love to know a little bit more about that. What was it that happened at the Cairo conference that is still upsetting the Middle East? Yeah,
0: today? well, in—in in it only took 11 days and they went sightseeing. This is 40, uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia called it Winston and his 40 thieves, um, 40 diplomats and oil men, significantly, plus Gertrude Bell. Uh, and um, they... They drew the lines on the maps. They invented Palestine. They invented Transjordan, which meant across the Jordan. That is now the, the Kingdom of Jordan. They invented Iraq. Um, they invented Syria. They were basically carving up the territories that had been held by Turkey as the Ottoman Empire. And that was defeated during World War One. And, um, so they, France and Britain just came in and said, okay, uh, France gets, uh, Lebanon and Syria, and, uh, Britain gets Iraq and Jordan and Palestine, and they were simply carving it up. Uh, and, um, and the oil men were very aware of where the deposits were. So, um, it, when Gertrude Bell drew a line around Basra, Baghdad, and Mosul, called it Iraq. She knew that she was putting together um, Shia, Sunni, and um, and Kurd ethnic groups who hated one another, and they did it deliberately on the theory that they would never make common cause and throw the Brits out. Now, that it, it worked until 1956, so she served her empire well. But every place you see on a map where there are interethnic and vicious fights going on and where there was a straight line you're looking at the maps that were drawn um, in, in the aftermath of World War I. And always the logic was let's cut across linguistic groups. Let's cut across ethnic groups. We're going to put traditional enemies together, and they'll be too busy fighting one another to get in the way of us when we're pulling whatever natural resources we want out of their countries.
1: Right. Divide and rule. It yes. is ugly. Yeah. yeah. No, I get it now. I, I I knew that they did that in Africa. I actually knew that they had done it in the Middle East. And, of course, the Soviets did it in Central Asia. Yes. Um, the same thing. And uh, I just hadn't quite connected. Well, and
0: Southeast Asia is probably part of the same thing, but that's not an area of expertise for me. Right.
1: <laughs> Nor me. No, you're right. But I had just not made the connection with the Cairo Conference because, frankly, I was thinking about it, too.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, you know, for me, uh, Um, I was... Uh, uh, I had finished uh, a thread of grace and that took seven years. That's the one about uh, Jewish survival in Nazi occupied Italy. That was also probably the hardest seven years of my personal life. I had three people who were very dear to me, who were dying of prolonged and awful illnesses. None of them were within driving distance, you know? So every time I had to be at a bedside, it was at least two plane flights away. Um, And, menopause and my kid was learning how to drive and getting his heart broken by his first girlfriend. And, you know, I mean, it was just everything was going on at once. And so I had decided that I was going to take a year off and I was going to read for pleasure. I was just going to get away. And, you know, to spend those seven years working on the Holocaust, it was just not a cheerful time. So, um, I, I just was watching the history channel and, uh, you know, just watching a documentary and it was only a, Half hour on T E Lawrence, who was someone that I was I'm very fond of and had uh, been enormously influenced by in my early teenage years. Um nineteen sixty two I saw Lawrence of Arabia and that it changed my life. Um and so I was watching this documentary and I was thinking, damn, you know, I'm I'm ten years older than Lawrence ever got to be. Uh he died at forty six, which seemed like well, he was no, at least he didn't die young. That's what I thought when he, when I was a kid.
1: Yeah, right. um, <laughs> Doesn't look like that now, right? Know. Of, prime of life, you know?
0: um, So I I thought I should get out some of the old biographies that I still have from when I was a teenager and see how I react to him as an adult after experiencing some history myself. Let's you know, is he still as heroic? Would I still be as impressed by him now as I as I was then? And uh, in all honesty, um, he. My respect for him grew, um, but there. Most of the stories end. Where you end a story really makes a difference. Most of them end at the end of the war uh, for him. And uh, I was reading the um, uh, the biography, and I went on to after the war. And one of the first things he was involved in was the 1921 Cairo Peace Conference, and that's when I finally made sense of the um the remark that osama bin laden had made uh in in 2001 about the the catastrophe of 80 years ago I went, oh there's there's two dots that just connected for me so that's what drew me into writing about the the cairo conference that's
1: fascinating i'm gonna have to look for that one too now um i haven't read those two middle ones because i read the Science fiction, and then I read Doc and Epitaph, which are what we're going to talk about. But um, I'll definitely have to go look for those too. Um, I normally ask this first, but I would love to hear a bit more about how you became a novelist because you hold degrees in anthropology, uh, including a PhD. You taught anatomy at the Case Western School of Dentistry. Fiction doesn't seem like the obvious accompaniment to that path. Uh, Well, the
0: the quick answer is unemployment.
1: State with which I too am familiar. Yeah, <laughs> can you relate? <laughs> yes, I'm a historian uh, uh, who, specialist uh, uh, who specializes specializes uh, uh, in uh, the 16th century. So I, did. Yeah, I was uh,
0: I was teaching hmm. at the uh, at the dental school. Uh, here in Cleveland, uh, Gross Anatomy, and um, they ran out of baby boomers to educate and they couldn't make up the difference with foreign students. I'm just I'm just being real about it because that's what the issue really was. Uh, and so they decided to cut costs by downsizing my entire department out of existence. So now all of the dental schools take their, uh, you know, biochem and anatomy and uh, uh, physiology and cell biology. Or they take all those courses in the med school. So I didn't actually lose my job. I know right where it is. Ah, <laughs> yes. It's in medical okay. <laughs> school. Somebody else is doing it now. Um, and, uh, but that was, you know, in a lot of ways that was okay because um, I, I wasn't going to get tenure track there. Uh, I, was a, I was a postdoc. That was a position that was going to run out. Um, and uh, I made a very smooth transition from uh, postdoc uh, anatomy studies of craniofacial biomechanics um, to uh, doing um, users manuals for CT and MR scanners, uh, there was Cleveland is a hotbed of um, uh, medical imaging uh, companies and medical uh, biomedical companies in general, and uh, I had used uh, a, an MR scanner in my own research. I knew how to do uh, double and triple oblique scans because I I had done that for my own research, and. Uh, <laughs> one of the engineers said that there was somebody in-house who was trying to write the user's manual for how to do that and that he would not live long enough to, be, to, to learn how to do that. And the guy was just so tired of explaining it to him. So uh, they offered me a, a, a job, a one-shot deal uh, to do a, a pamphlet on uh, double oblique scans with an MR scanner. And I turned the uh, the project around in 11 days with the illustrations and they went oh would you like to do the entire hp scanner and i went sure (laughs) so i like cut my hours in half and tripled my income in one step it was amazing
1: it still doesn't quite explain where the novels come in though
0: well then again okay uh at the end of the first first bush administration okay so george h w bush there was a big recession uh and uh my um my contracts dried up. I was working freelance and uh, uh, the, the company, one company went under and one was barely making payroll and another, you know, uh, uh, cut its outside vendors from 800 to 60 and I didn't make that cut. So uh, I was unemployed and my kid was going to um, uh, first grade and I had time on my hands and an idea for what I thought was going to be a short story. I've always been a passionate reader. But I never, I wasn't one of those kids who uh, grew up saying, oh, I want to be a writer when I grow up. I wanted to be an anthropologist, and I was for a long time. Um, and so I i just thought I'd like to try making dialogue. I'd like to try uh, creating a character just to see what it's like. And I honestly believed that I was only doing this to make myself a more appreciative reader. I thought I would get how hard it was. And I would stop being so picky and crabby about what I read because <laughs> I was really getting at the point where I was like, oh, man, this is crap. Why am I reading this? Um, and so I, I I got started on uh, what I thought was going to be a short story, and it turned into The Sparrow and Children of God. And, you know, it just kept pulling me along.
1: That's really great. I was actually the, very much the same. I was uh, a historian. I wrote history, academic history. And mm-hmm. it never occurred to me that I would sit down and write fiction. So it's always interesting to me to hear how other people get there. Um, and uh, it's yeah, I mean,
0: it's- there's no downside for your first for your first novel. But um, for my for my son and my husband, I mean, they were living with June Cleaver as far as they were concerned. Uh, you know, they came home and the house was uh, neat and the laundry was done and there were, you know, cookies and milk for Danny and a nice uh, uh, dinner for Don. And they were like, what's not to like about this? Um, And for me, it was like they'd leave and I'd go play with my imaginary friends. It was a great gig. Um, So, yeah, I I, I didn't see any reason to, uh, uh, as the story began to, I quit every Monday. I mean, that's the other thing about this is that, it wasn't like it came easy. It wasn't like it all flowed from my fingers. Um, every Monday, I just said, I can't make this work. It's a stupid idea. Jesuits in space is dumb. Nobody's going to want to publish this. It's just stupid. Uh, and then I'd, I'd just walk away from it. And the next morning when I was standing in the shower or when I was doing laundry later that afternoon, I would suddenly think, well, what if I saw this from Jimmy Quinn's point of view? What if I, you know, or, or a line of dialogue would come. To me, that would then pull me past whatever had made me despair on Monday morning. Um, and then the other beautiful thing about writing fiction is that you know you, you don't have to get it right the first time. Um, I'm a big baseball fan, and uh, basically on Monday I would hit into a double double play, and like and th- but then Tuesday, well maybe I'd get the first base, and s- by Thursday I was stretching it into a single, and you keep working it on. By Friday, you can hit one out of the park. Um, but it didn't start that way. You have to continually see what's wrong with the scene. Why isn't it working? Where did the dialogue get clunky? What's missing in this interaction? You know, those kind of questions are what I would answer all week long. And then despair again on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> You have to be able to tolerate despair. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think we all have those moments when we just think, what was I thinking? Why yeah,
0: a, <laughs> this is a stupid idea and I never should have started it and I'm not going to finish it. And I'm done. Right. Know, until the next morning. Then you wake up with something. Oh, all right. I'll get a little further.
1: So in 2011, you published Doc. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure if I would call Epitaph a sequel to Doc. I mean, it, it, it does come later, and it does include some of the same characters, but it seems to me to be quite distinct. They can, and, be,
0: they can be read separately. They can be read in either direction. Um, right. But, but yeah, they were first Doc and then Epitaph was the way they were written.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I did find it helpful to have read Doc instead of, in terms of understanding Epitaph.
0: And I'm certainly shameless about giving you lots of reasons in Epitaph. I was like, back in Dodge. You know? <laughs> in case you didn't read doc back and dodge this happened yeah i was really pretty pretty awful about that
1: um yeah well you have to be (laughs) i'm writing book three of a series and i'm like how much do i say to get people so that they are desperate to go read book one you know but not so much that they feel i already know that i don't have to go back there right right um so doc is uh Dr. John Henry Holliday, as in Doc Holliday of uh, Tombstone fame. And uh, I admit that I knew appallingly little about him, uh, basically a Star Trek episode where he was played by <laughs> Dr. Yes. McCoy. Oh, God, one of
0: the worst. Yeah, <laughs> and, the names uh, of uh, people just randomly distributed.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I didn't know he had tuberculosis. I didn't know he was a dentist rather than a doctor. Um, but how did you become interested in him? He's quite a shift from the Cairo Conference yeah well um I,
0: I have to admit that a lot of my ideas do come from movies uh, <laughs> i like I love movies I love television I enjoy visual arts i really I, I I think those are fun uh and I get interested in something uh and then we'll uh go get biographies out with with this particular pair of books. I do tend to write in pairs, so there were two uh science fiction novels The Sparrow and Children of God, then two twentieth century historicals uh and and then two uh, Westerns, and uh, so I, I like to shift up the genre. I enjoy the differences in the expectations that people have, and I want to fulfill ex- genre expectations but then pull it further along. Um, with uh, Doc, I was um, I was approached by a, a local film uh, society, the Cleveland Cinematheque, and they were going around asking uh, local celebrities, and apparently I qualified at that time, uh, to uh, pick a movie pardon me, a film pick a film and um, uh, and introduce it and then lead a, uh, a discussion about it afterwards. And because of the topics on my earlier books that had been published, they probably expected me to either go with like The Mission or 2001 A Space Odyssey because of the science fiction or maybe Life is Beautiful because of Italy and the War or Lawrence of Arabia. And instead <laughs> I said I'll do tombstone. And there was this long silence. (laughs) That's a movie. That's not really a film. It's a movie. Um, But I had been watching it. it, It's a, it's a fun movie and I've seen it many times and it's on A&E or or, uh, AMC all the time. Um, And I thought that Val Kilmer's uh, portrayal of Doc Holliday is is just charming. And uh, actually so is Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp. But I had um, volunteered to serve on my city's planning and zoning commission that year. And I know that sounds really, really boring. But my uh, responsibility that year was to um, study the uh, ordinances for gun control uh, and, uh, um, okay, titty bars, okay, Uh, you know, vice laws around the country And the idea was that we wanted to write our own ordinances For South Euclid without getting involved With a uh, Supreme Court challenge Because those are enormously expensive And you usually lose So we wanted to see what, what ordinances Had already passed Supreme Court scrutiny So that was my job I was supposed to look at vice laws and, uh, and gun control ordinances And I watched I just happened to watch Tombstone again After having been involved with that for about six months And went oh my god <laughs> South Euclid, Ohio, is dealing with the same issues as Western boomtowns like Dodge City, Kansas, and Tombstone, Arizona. How sad is that? Um, and uh, there were so many issues that Tombstone alluded to—you uh, 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 know, um, smuggling and gang warfare along the Mexican border. Does that sound, you know, familiar? Um, uh, the kind of corruption. Uh, that can happen to law enforcement when gigantic piles of cash are involved. Um, all of that kind of made it feel, uh, 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 Americans feeling threatened by the Chinese. Um, women, uh, still marching for equal pay for equal work. All of that stuff was in that movie. And I thought this is, I want to go into this further and find out more about what was going on in 1881. Um, the, the politics are virtually the same as we have today. Um, there were two uh, newspapers. One was basically MSNBC and the other was basically Fox News. Um, this is in Tombstone, Arizona. And so, uh, you know, all of these things just seemed like they were so contemporary. And I started reading biographies, which is always my next step when I get interested in a, in a particular era of history. And what completely hooked me was something that the Holiday family had not ever made public until about 11, 12 years ago when Karen Holiday Tanner finally published uh, Doc Holiday, A Family Portrait. She had access to memoirs and papers and interviews and family stuff that had never been public before. And it. she was the one who revealed that, uh, John Henry Holliday was born with a cleft palate and a cleft lip. Now, I worked at a dental school. I went, wow, why didn't anybody ever mention that? And it turns out that he his his cleft was uh, repaired surgically by his uncle, who was a surgeon, John Stiles Holliday. Uh, and it was the first cleft palate repair in North America, as far as I've been able to find out. Um, and his mother... Invented speech therapy in order to correct his diction, and I was just this. It was just so different from the uh, um, the persona who is given that man's name in the movies. Uh, it, gambler and gunman is how Doc Holliday is always uh, um, identified when you when you read about him anywhere, and I thought that was just so unfair. I was I'm very maternal about him um i started reading about doc holiday he was he uh came down with tuberculosis at the same age that my son was at that time when i was reading and i just suddenly i made a connection with him and he didn't have a mama to love him when he was grown so i just took that boy for my own i wanted to like just really gain for him the compassion and the respect that i believe he deserves so that's where doc came from
1: So tell us about him. Um, Doc itself is not set in 1881. It's set three years earlier. And you mentioned that you picked that time because it was a relatively happy time in his life. It was the
0: happiest year he had after he was diagnosed. Yeah, that was the one good year that he had. Um,
1: So tell us about him as the the person that you discovered and the person that you portray in your novel. Yeah, there is a sense if you watch that there are over 40 movies that have been made
0: about the gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, And one of the dynamics that you have to be aware of whenever you watch any of those is that there is there is a concerted effort to deflect any blame that might have been Wyatt Earp's onto other people, the Clantons, the McLowry's and Doc Holliday generally take it. Doc was a friend of his, so they were, you know, a little less blatant about making everything that was Wyatt's fault his fault. But nevertheless, he is given this person like he's. He killed thousands of men, or something. You know, it's, it's just—it's it, all baloney. <laughs> he was a very good dentist. He wanted nothing more than to practice his profession, and one of the the things that I wanted so much to be able to explain in the book Doc is why he continued. He he went west when he was twenty two years old because that was the the best shot he had at at um, making a recovery from tuberculosis, uh, his TB was already advanced at that age. He was given eight to eight to 24, eighteen to twenty four months to live if he stayed in Atlanta um, and uh, there was anecdotal dev- evidence that if you went to the dry air and sunshine of uh, this American Southwest that uh, sometimes you could go into remission and sometimes there were even cures um, and so he went west at that age and arrived. In Dallas, with a job waiting for him, he was taken on as a, a partner in a dental firm in Dallas. Um, and the day he got there, it was the the beginning of the crash of eighteen seventy three. So anybody who who graduated in two thousand eight, for example, like my son, <laughs> you know, there you are, you with your shiny new degree, and you're you're graduating right into the teeth of a enormous. Uh, Economic downturn that is going to last for years and for John Henry Holiday he's out there on the western frontier he's got uh, you know there's no nobody's got money for dentistry anymore Um, all the jobs that still exist require strength and stamina and he's got neither so what are his alternatives there's no income from his family they're broke after the war there's no way for him to make money except to gamble. And so he becomes a professional card player. And that's another thing that I thought was really, really interesting about this guy. He was deeply ashamed of that. To be a professional gambler was the male equivalent of being a, a, a prostitute. The 1800s, if you, everybody gambled. I'm not saying that no, everybody gambled. But to gamble for your living was like, it's like with a prostitute. You were doing for money what respectable people did for recreation, okay? And he kept it a secret from his family for years, Uh, and with good reason. When they found out, when, when the gunfight at the O.K. Corral was national news, he was identified as a sporting man, and he had been telling them that he was still practicing dentistry. Um, and uh, they never. His father never spoke his name again. He was disowned for gambling wow. professionally. Um, so uh, it was just. I, I the last time that he felt well enough to hang out a shingle and to uh, to practice dentistry, which he really wanted, uh, was in Dodge City in 1878. That's also the year that he met the Earps. It's the year that he met Kate Heroni, who became. Uh, his lover and his companion who was with him for nine years until he died off and on. <laughs> they would they would have terrible fights and leave one another, but um, mostly she left him, but she always came back and he always took her back. That was the other thing. Um, so it was just, it was, he is well-educated. He spoke Greek and Latin and French. He, you know, he played classical piano. It's not the guy you see in the movies. And I wanted to restore his reputation.
1: And you did, I think. He's a very appealing character, complex, um, sometimes difficult, but... uh, Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, for me, I I, I grew up in Chicago, so I'm an Illinois girl. And uh, I grew up in a state where uh, Lincoln is a secular saint, you know. And and for me to write for a a Georgian's point of view, uh, and they still spit when you say Lincoln, you know, (laughs) That's, that's... he is not well thought of in the South. So that was a real stretch for me to try and understand the Civil War from the other point of view. But, of course, that's part of the uh, the thing that I find most interesting about being a historical novelist is uh, getting a more rounded understanding of the history um, and understanding it from the emotional point of view of the people who were involved in it. Not just what happened and what happened and what happened and what happened. It's not just dates, but why people made the decisions they made and moved in the directions that they moved, how it made sense to them to do one thing and not another. That's, that's to me, the really, the that's the payoff for um, historical novels in general.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I'm glad you mentioned the Civil War, because that's actually, um, it's very much the backdrop of these novels. I mean, so many of the people... Oh, yeah. In the Wild West are there because, you know. Because they, of what
0: happened during the war. Yeah. Right.
1: Exactly. Uh, a lot of them, there.
0: a lot of the guys that I write about, uh, their fathers were in the Mexican War. That's another war. I keep thinking I should probably go back and try to understand that. That's kind of, uh, uh, the 19th century's, uh, America's, uh, Vietnam War. That split politics in the 1840s in a way that comes home to roost in 1860 it's the it's the beginnings of, of uh, uh, people in across America north and south understanding things in a very different way and you still see that split in a, in much of the the politics that are going on today I mean you still got the KKK um we used to be able to pretend they weren't there anymore uh, and everybody's crawled out from under the rocks now um but it's always been there and so there there is a split in the country that goes way 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 back. Um, but it has come to the fore most violently in the Civil War. Um, and uh, Doc himself, for example, was only 13 when the war ended. He was not directly involved. Uh, Wyatt was in his early teen years, but the older Earps, um Virgil and, uh, um, and James, uh, were in, in combat on the north, on, on the side of the north, Um, So and in in Tombstone, Arizona, there was a huge split politically between the ranchers that were there long before silver was uh, uh, discovered in Tombstone uh, and the industrialists who came in with the discovery of the silver. And because there were so many more of them, they began to take over politically. So basically you had a bunch of, of Yankees coming down and suddenly they're in charge of everything. And it did not sit well with the ranchers in the region.
1: So let's talk about the herbs. I mean, I think it's fair to say, and you get to the reasons for this, but I wouldn't give it away because it would be a spoiler. Um, uh, it's pretty much thought. I would say in the states, at least, that white herb is like Mr. Squeaky Clean, right? He's the Elliot Ness of the 19th century.
0: And that's uh, that's actually a better analogy than you know, because Elliot uh, Ness
1: wasn't quite so. I'm assuming <laughs> all, cause he's made out either. I'm assuming he wasn't, because really, who is? Who <laughs> so is exactly? Exactly. Yeah. So tell us about your uh, your herbs.
0: Okay. Well, here's the thing of it. Again, uh, 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 one of the things I tried to do with uh, uh, with epitaph was to understand how the thirty seconds that the gunfight at the OK Corral—how did those thirty seconds move to the center of what we believe about frontier justice and the Old West? Out of all the gunplay and all of the the, you know the violence uh, and everything that happened on the frontier, why did those thirty seconds? Become the thing that people remember and the way that they remember. Um, and why are there 40 movies about that? Um, so I was very interested in, you know, with an anthropology background, I'm, I'm interested in how we choose what becomes our mythology. What, what resonates with people so consistently that 135 years later, you're still talking about the gunfight at the OK Corral. Um, and so, uh, Partly, it was simply because uh, Wyatt's paramour—she well, lived with him for 49 years. That counts. Uh, whether they ever actually got married, they were—they were definitely husband and wife. And so uh, she didn't die until 1944, and she was very much involved with um, making sure that he was remembered as a squeaky clean lawman. Now, if you go into Erp Land, which is where you know people who really care about this—and this is—it's this is, like science fiction. There is a whole subculture that just is passionate about the genre and about this particular uh, um, element of, of uh, Western lore. Uh, and ha- some of them will, will identify why as a squeaky queen, clean incorruptible lawman and others will say he was a stone cold killer. And the problem I found was that people were saying either or, and the answer was, yes, he was both. And that's the man that I have to portray in Epitaph. How do you go from being someone who has a rigid black and white sense of right and wrong to someone who is able to look a man in the eye and gun him down? Um, He carried out what would now be called five extrajudicial executions in the 96 hours after his brother was killed. and he was wanted for murder in, in uh, for, for his whole life after that. You know, this, it, he, he was not a, a hero in his own time. So I had to reconcile. How do you make a man like that? How do you make a guy who's very, very rigid in his worldview and who takes the he, he's a teetotal Methodist and he's you know he's been saved by Jesus and this is the guy who then turns around and guns men down without a second glance uh, and never felt bad about it, did not re- regret it. Um, that's a much more complex and a much more interesting person than hero or villain, which is the way that it's been approached earlier.
1: Yes, it is. Absolutely. And he's very much in your novel, um, He's, he's like one of this group of brothers. He's not even the, it, it the was liveliest him. or the you no, know, the most no. sympathetic or any of that. Can no, you tell us a little no. bit about the brothers as well?
0: Okay, well, Virgil was the officer in charge. Virgil Virgil was uh, 37, 38 years old when they were in um, uh, Tombstone. And of all the brothers, he's the only one who was a career lawman. Virgil was a lawman. And he died wearing a badge when he was 60. Um, uh, Morgan was the younger brother and he was uh, uh about 30 at, at the time that the uh, that they were in Tombstone 3031 um and uh he was the one that everybody loved morgan was charming and he was funny and he made friends with people who weren't in the family who weren't brothers he he, he got outside he was the one who was it, often because morgan dies and because the movies Basically, make him into a plot device. He's the guy wearing the red shirt in Star Trek. He has to die so that Wyatt and Doc can ride off and avenge him. And, and that's the big, uh, Erp Vendetta ride at the end of all the movies. Um, but in real life, um, the, the, um, the friendship wasn't Wyatt and Doc, it was Wyatt and Morgan. Morgan was a, a reader. Uh, and um, he always had a book in his hands, and I think that that was the basis of, the, uh, of what they found in one another. I think that Doc was just dying to have a book club. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he, he gravitated towards people who could be seduced into reading and talking about books. Um, Wyatt, I believe, was probably dyslexic. Uh, you know, based on you know bits and pieces, these are dots you have to to connect. But I think you can make a good case that he was dyslexic. That was something that people didn't understand at the time. But he he didn't read, and he probably couldn't not easily. Um, and so he kept to himself. Um, he was known to have a good sense of humor, but he never smiled and he never laughed. Um, and uh, my <laughs> my interpretation of that. Because all of the Erps talked so much about how Doc was a very good dentist. I think that Wyatt just had terrible teeth. And um, he he didn't smile and he didn't laugh because he didn't want to reveal that. And we do have uh, a quote from his older brother, Virgil, saying uh, Wyatt is ignorant. And he's afraid if he opens his mouth and talks, people will know that. So that's why he keeps quiet. That's from his older brother. <laughs> so this is, you know, I'm I'm trying to, you know, dig back to... The people who knew this guy, who were with him and, and make sense of all the little bits and pieces, all the you know the, the, the historical facts that we have, and connect them to, to build um, a character that, that encompasses all of that, without having to leave anything out. I, I really don't like to just say, "Oh, well, I'm just not going to deal with that element of this guy's personality."
1: Yes, I did get the impression that he was dyslexic, which is uh, without you ever saying so. So I think you yeah. did a great job of yeah. Well, of the term doesn't doesn't exist in, in those general. days. No, of course
0: not. Uh, you know, people would just call you stupid, uh, or you know, you're just not good at school, or you'd say I'm not much of a reader, or something like that. You know, there are a whole bunch of different ways of getting around it. But we know now that there are you know a substantial portion of the uh, uh, of the population that just find it very very difficult to process printed. Uh,
1: print into thought and speech it's just very very hard right now i mean even when i was a child it was not known because i remember i had a cousin who was dyslexic and they initially thought it was because he'd been raised in switzerland and he was speaking three languages before he you know yeah
0: uh, yeah and people will find or they'll either call just she's you know just terrible at school or why doesn't she work harder you know (laughs) Right. That's, that's always, it's like these poor kids are working their asses off in school. It is so much harder for them than for anybody else. And then to be called lazy for it. It's it's a wonder more folks don't wind up in a tower with a rifle. <laughs> just like, that would make me nuts. But mo- mostly they do blame themselves. Now we know. But in the past it was different.
1: Right, right. So, and it's interesting you say that about Doc when he just started book club. Because that's a lot of his relationship with Kate Haroney as well. Oh, yes. as. Yeah, so she's literary is, and educated.
0: Yeah, she is known, uh, you know, to the extent that she's known at all, in the two most recent uh, movies about the gunfight at the OK Corral, one is with Costner, Kevin Costner, and um, uh, Dennis Quaid as Wyatt and Doc. That's called Wyatt Earp. And then there's the one with Kurt Russell as Wyatt and uh, um, Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday, and that's the that's one called Tombstone. In both of those, uh, Kate... Uh, it, it, They do refer to the idea that she's been called Big Nose Kate. She wasn't, she didn't have a big nose, okay? She just, but the the ERPS gave her that nickname because she was always sticking her nose in where it didn't belong. Kate had opinions and she would let you know when she thought you were screwing up or when you should, you know, behave in a different way. Um, And so that's why she got the nickname Big Nose Kate. But this is a woman who also uh, read in Greek and Latin, spoke uh, Hungarian, German. Uh, English was her seventh or eighth language, and she learned it uh, after she was orphaned on the frontier and uh, was dealing for herself. So she learned her English in the um, in the bordellos. Um, but she was well educated, and I think that was what drew this very odd couple together. Um, they fought like crazy, and I had to, it was very difficult for me to write that relationship, finding my way into Doc and Kate. When writing Doc was difficult because um, my husband and I have, uh, have been married for almost 45 years now. We don't fight. We, sometimes we argue, you know, we can disagree, but mostly we don't. And, uh, but I knew that there were couples for whom uh, big fights, big arguments, a lot of drama that, that pulls them together. Um, uh, uh, but what I find the breakthrough for me was I finally realized boy, the makeup sex must have been spectacular. And so that was, my, that was my way of understanding how, what, what kept uh, Doc and, and uh, Kate together. Uh, I think they fought about money. I think they fought about how hard it was for her to earn it and how easy it was for him to earn it and what a spendthrift he was and how careful she was with their money. I think they fought a lot about money. Many, many couples do. Um, but I think that they genuinely loved one another.
1: So this brings me. There are a lot, of, quite a number of women in the uh, in both doc and epitaph, especially epitaph, yeah. where you have all the yeah. Erp women, and a lot They're of them. Very...
0: Okay, that's that's something that comes out of who tells the story and why. Josie Erp Wyatt's wife is the one who shaped the way he would be presented, and she did this in nineteen twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty. I mean, it was these are books that are written at the very end of Wyatt's life, where he died at seventy nine. Uh, She died in 1944 uh, and she was still she would threaten to sue anybody who didn't who who portrayed him in a way that was not completely heroic. She didn't want anybody knowing about the wives. She wanted them written out of the story, because if anybody went back and looked deeply into the the couples that were together in Tombstone, they would discover that she had been first with Johnny Behan and that she worked for a summer. It was not illegal. She thought of herself as a member of the demimond, You know, she was, you know, but she was taking money. She was, she was supporting herself and, and she entertained gentlemen. Let's put it that way. Uh, and then she moved in with Wyatt and Wyatt had to dump his common law wife to, to be able to be with her. That was a very difficult relationship. It's complicated. And Josie didn't want it complicated. So she wanted all of the women written out. And she threatened to sue if anybody referred to them.
1: Because so they were all common-law wives or they, they had uh, had. They were all working in the sex trade in one way. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Ali, um,
0: Ali Sullivan, who is Virgil's wife, or she was common-law because he was married before the Civil War, went off to war. It was James who was almost killed, but the word came back to his wife that it had been Virgil who was killed. She remarried. And had an, a daughter, and when Virgil found out that that had happened while he was gone, rather than go back and make life really difficult for her, he just he just moved on. He met his daughter when she was, I believe, 33 years old. She'd wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, and so he was not in a – he couldn't marry Ali Sullivan legally. So they were not married either. Uh, we think – that possibly Morgan and Louisa were married, but the courthouse records burned down in 1980 or 1882. So the record of that marriage was, was gone. And, and Morgan uh, died shortly thereafter.
1: So it's interesting, uh, especially for me coming from 16th century stuff where it's really hard to find out anything about anybody. I mean, anything real um, beyond when they lived and died and stuff like that. Um, you actually know quite a lot about these women. Oh
0: yeah. There have been that was one of the really nice things about about writing now about this topic. Uh in the last ten years, ten to fifteen years, there have been some really good biographies come out. We have the internet now. You can jump on and get the census records for Davenport, Iowa, in eighteen sixty and eighteen seventy, and you can find out when the Heronis moved there, there's a lot more paper trail that is easily accessible. And there have been a number of biographies that have been written about the people in Epitaph who were either just ignored or their names were used, but they weren't represented properly or whatever. Um, So I'm able to take those biographies that are based on more solid information and take them into account when I'm writing uh, epitaph. There are no fictional characters in that book. It is 100% based on as much reality as I could go. Now, I had to, I had to pare it down, because not everybody gets to be a main character. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to represent them accurately.
1: So what are the parts that you made up?
0: Okay, there are, there are actually I can say exactly what is made up. Um, every scene that has Wyatt and Josie together had to be from my imagination, we know they knew one another, but there are absolutely no records of it there's no there are no letters there 's nothing that we can draw on for that uh, and uh, also I had in order to be able to it, it, uh, we piano music was such a backbone part of doc that I wanted to lead epitaph with a scene between uh, with, involving the piano to uh, and so I had to um, change. The lessons that Josie took, she did not take piano lessons. She took dance lessons. And so <laughs> I was like, okay, we're just, that's, but I'm going to be uh, honest and upfront. That was made up. The other thing that was, uh, that I had to change was that in real life, Tommy McLowry, we think had a crush on James's, James Earp's stepdaughter. Now, the problem with that was I had. Already published doc, and I never mentioned that Bessie had children by an earlier relationship. And I couldn't suddenly like bring them in now.
1: <laughs> so <Right.
0: laughs> I, I said, oh, damn it. So, okay, now what am I going to do? And so what I did was deflect the crush onto Louisa, who was Morgan's wife. And uh, that way I was able to bring out both of those um, characters in a much more sympathetic, deeper way to give them, you know, and I think it's realistic to think that they would have been attracted to one another. Tommy McLowry was a honey. He was just a sweetheart. And so was Louisa Earp. Uh, And uh, I can see how she could love Morgan to death and still just be thinking, this is not the life I wanted. I'm, I'm tired of the... Of the fights and the brawls and the danger and moving from one place to another and and here's Tommy Mclowry, who is this gorgeous, sweet, nice man with two hundred acres under alfalfa you, know?
1: <laughs> you gotta be, you gotta let yourself think about how life might have been different <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk because the Mafaris are on the other side of the the Battle of the Ok Corral together yes. with the Clantons. and so before I let you go, I think we should talk about them a little bit. They're part of a, a or at least some of them are part of a gang known as the Cowboys, which I thought was really interesting because we think of Cowboys as a good thing, yeah. Yeah. Um how did they manage to get themselves into this mess? Well
0: here's the thing of it. Um one again, the um the movies, which are based on books that were presented as biography, which were actually heavily edited fiction and extremely scrubbed up biography. Um, the movies want to make the gunfight at the OK Corral into a conflict between the lawmen and the cattle thieves. OK, so you get a big emphasis on everybody on the other side. There's the Earps and Holiday versus everybody. who They were all outlaws on the other side. Not true. Um, I was doing a, uh, a talk, uh, a panel session on Doc at the Tucson Book Festival. And a woman came up to me afterwards and asked, are you going to be writing about the gunfight next? And I said, I, you know, I hadn't thought I was going to, but everybody keeps asking, so maybe I should. And she said, well, I just want you to know, if you're going to write about Tombstone, I am the great-grandniece of Tom and Frank McLowry, who were killed that day. And I want you to know that they did not go to Tombstone looking for a fight with the Earps. They were on their way to catch a stagecoach out of town. They were going to my great-grandmother's wedding, and they never made it. And that just changed everything for me. Um, I, instead of the bad guys, I started looking into who was Tom McLowry, Who was Frank McLowry. There are, there's now a good biography of those guys. Uh, Who was Ike Clanton really? Who was old man Clanton? There are biographies of Curly Bill Brocious. These are all the guys who have just been the law, the, the bad guys, Um, And I wanted to be able to tell their side of the story. Now, I'm a cop's daughter. (laughs) Some of these guys were thieves. (laughs) But Tommy McLaurie wasn't a thief. And I don't even think Frank McLaurie was a thief. Um, And so I wanted to be able to present how they got sucked into this vortex of violence that takes place on October 26th of 1881. And moving on from that. How did their story become a story of Wyatt Earp's heroism? That, to me, was you know the last third of the book to me is a really really interesting part of the history.
1: Yes, I think so too. I was going to ask you. In fact, you mentioned you mentioned it earlier, but you in the book you say it's this wonderful line about where a tale begins and ends matters. Yes. Um, and, and who you, tells the story? And who that's tells the story, and why? That makes. And why? Right. Yes, exactly. And of course, that's true of history as well as, as historical fiction. But sure. you yes. decided to th- this book. I mean, it, the gunfight at the OK Corral is the center of it, but it yes. it starts well before and it continues long after.
0: Yes, yes, it's a story that starts, and, and I think at some point there was a I talk about oh, oh, at the end of uh, Thread of Grace. Uh, it, one of the characters uh, talks about uh, a rabbi says this was a war that began long before it started and hasn't ended yet. Um, and I think all wars are like that. They begin long before they start and they and they don't end. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the shooting stops, but the the echo down the generations of you know the the uh, one of the things I wanted to do with the uh, uh, epitaph is show the way that that war echoed down the generations. The way that uh, Virgil is still he's fighting the war at night. Well, we recognize that as PTSD. But, you know, he's, he's waking up, he's, he's having these horrendous dreams of carrying his brother's shattered body through the battle to get him back to a hospital. Um, all of that kind of thing is is really important. And, um, and people don't want to think about that or they just don't bother or something. I don't know. The, the, just the fact that concussion was a major uh, element of what happened on October 26th of 1881. Uh, Virgil Earp knocked Ike Clanton cold. Mm-hmm. He was out for two hours. That's a serious head injury. And what does Ike do when he wakes up? He goes out drinking. What's the worst thing in the world you can do on a concussion? Drink. So that we get that now. We understand. It's like, no, don't do it, Ike. Um, but that's what really happened. Um, so I, I, I think that what, what we can bring to the history uh, and what I try to bring to the, all of the characters that I portray in my historical fiction is some compassion and some understanding for the way it looked to them at the time. I'm trying to tell not just Wyatt Earp's story. But Virgil's story and Doc's story and Kate's story and Allie's story and Ike Clanton's story and Tommy McLowry's story. It's their lives too, it's not just the heroes.
1: Yeah, there are so many themes in this, that ones that we aren't going to have a chance to get to, but I hope to have another conversation with you someday and get to them. But there's, um, you know, there's child abuse, for example, what we would now call child abuse. Yes. Was just See, considered just, discipline that was, at the time.
0: Spare the rod, spoil the child. That was because beating the hell out of, literally beating the devil out of your children was good parenting. Now, we would recognize that today. We would call that child abuse. <laughs> but, you know, knocking a kid cold is not considered good child care anymore. But that was something that was, you know, kind of expected. Although, even in a time when that was considered good parenting, Nicholas Earp and Newton Clanton, the fathers of the Earps and the and, and the Clantons who come down to us in history, were considered unusually brutal men. So even in a time when that was normal, those guys were 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 thought to be vicious.
1: So you've hinted at the answer to this, but what would you like readers to take away from Epitaph and Doc? In- oh, the less you know, the easier it is to be
0: sure. Ah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so That's you- the theme pretty much of all my books. The less <laughs> you know, the easier it is to be certain about what you think.
1: That's true. That's the real message of Sparrow and Children of God,
0: isn't it? Yep.
1: yep. So what are you working on now? Um, I'm working on a story.
0: I got, I got interested in mining <laughs> because I was down in Tombstone so much. I'm there every year now. Uh, and the reason for Tombstone's existence is the silver mines underneath the city. Um, I am writing a book called An Unremembered Life, which is uh, the story of uh, Annie Clements, who was once known around the world as America's Joan of Arc. She was... Uh, a um, the the leader of the um, Western Federation of, uh, mine, of, uh, of Miners in, in 1913, and she called a strike in Calumet, Michigan. She said, lay down your stu- uh, tools, and 15,000 men walked out of their jobs. Now, that's interesting to me. How did a 25-year-old girl become someone who could say, we're on strike, and have 15,000 men pay attention? Stop writing her story. we don't remember (laughs) her anymore. No. don't tell her story anymore. Why not?
1: That's great. All right. Well, when you get it done, we'll come back and talk about all this stuff. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. You're most welcome. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am CP Leslie. And today I've been talking with Mary Doria Russell, author of Epitaph, a novel of the OK Corral. You can find out more about her at http colon slash slash That's M-A-R-Y-D-O-R-I-A-R-U-S-S-E-L-L as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at newbookshistfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cpdesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.